Christianity made its inroads, it changed so many aspects of life. But going back just a few centuries ago, things started to change, and all of a sudden, there was this creeping movement of secularism to drive out belief in Jesus, belief in God, to where we have today a very confused post-Christian age we live in. And I've been many places around the world. I've been to Africa in the last 20 years, probably 20 times, Asia about a dozen times. I trained Christian leaders, and primarily in the area of what's called apologetics. And apologetics basically means uh, evidence why Christianity is true. Now, it used to be assumed that Christianity was true, but today people question and they doubt. They wonder, can the Bible be trusted? Is it reliable? This morning I'm going to talk about that. If you have the chance to come this evening, though, this evening I'm going to be talking about Israel and what's going on in Israel. And it's going to be a very important message because it will give you the whole scope of why things are happening and how God has already told us in advance what is going on now and what will happen in the future. So if you can come tonight, uh, I spoke on this twice last week at my home church in California where Lori and I are from. And uh, so come tonight, we'll talk about Israel. Well, it looks like the slides are working. So I gave it this long, lengthy title. In fact, I could bring up my own PowerPoint here, see if I can find it here, so I can follow the slides. Ah, here we go. Here we go. We're on the same page. So it's kind of a, a long, lengthy title, Christianity's Rise, Secularism's Emergence, and the Church's Challenge. Because things aren't the way they used to be. So let's move on. I got a little picture here of Michelangelo. There's actually some movement in this, but it won't show up on, uh, uh, on this particular slide. But that goes back to God reaching out to Adam. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis tells us that God has purpose in us. And the Bible tells us a story of redemption. It goes back to the Garden of Eden when sin entered the world. And that caused a separation between humanity and God. But early in Genesis chapter 3 and going forward come the promises that God's going to fix the problem. And he tells a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, through you all nations will be blessed. And those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. We're seeing that happening today. And so the Bible is a love story of God reaching back to humanity like we see here and reaching out to give us hope. Religion is people trying to reach God. Christianity is God reaching down to us, meeting us right where we are, saying, yeah, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, but Jesus Christ dying on a cross paved the way that by faith we can be saved, born again, because of God's love, God's mercy. Okay, let's go on. So Christianity's rise and how it changed the world. I just want to talk about a few areas where Christianity has changed the world. And then we'll talk about how the shift has happened. First of all, the area of life. Before Christianity, unwanted children, especially girls, were left to die of exposure or sold into slavery. In fact, there's a famous letter from the first century where a man is writing to his sister, whose name was Alice, and he says to Alice, he says, if in the end you give birth, if it is a boy, let it live. If it is a female, expose it, meaning you abandon that baby to die. They didn't have much abortion in those days, but it was the equivalent of that. Contrast that with Jesus and his treatment of children. He said, let the little children come to me, for such are the kingdom of heaven. 
And indeed, the Bible gives great uh, uh, comfort in talking about the little ones. And as a result of this, this led to the forbidding of exposing children and the idea of orphanages where children who didn't have parents could be placed where they could be raised properly. So Christianity changed the world because Christianity stood for life. Secondly, Christianity stood for education to train people's hearts and minds. And part of the reason of that was that the idea that God has created us to know him, and as a result, we can know him through his creation and through all the other things. Christian monasteries, they became the source to maintain uh, biblical texts, classical texts. We wouldn't have the texts of so many of the Greco-Roman writers except the monasteries. They would copy these and keep track of all these things, including scripture. And if you look at the leading universities, in fact, the motto of Oxford University is Psalm 27.1, uh, in, uh, the Lord is my light. So these leading universities became places where uh, they were inspired by the words of Jesus to love God with your mind, Luke chapter 10, verse 27. So there's life, there's education as a result of Christianity. Next, compassion. Something in the first century world where Jesus was born into hardly existed because of slavery in the Roman Empire. What we see is Jesus' concern for the suffering of the least of us. For example, the lepers. And so, as a result of this concern, the sanitariums were created to take care of the lepers. And as a result of this, the modern hospital movement began. Sometimes when I talk to skeptics, especially the atheists, they begin to put down Christianity or people who believe in God. I say, well, you know, that's, that's okay. That's your choice. However, next time you're in a serious accident, don't go to a Christian hospital. Find an atheist hospital. Oh, an atheist hospital. Let's see, we've got Baptist hospitals, Lutheran, Catholic, Presbyterian, Methodist. No atheist hospitals. Why is that, I wonder? And so they talk a good talk, but they don't walk the walk. And so hospitals are as a result of compassion based on what Jesus told us. Going back to the fourth century, the Council of Nicaea, the first general council of the church, which primarily focused on the Trinity. If anybody ever tells you the Council of Nicaea had anything to do with the books of the Bible, it didn't. That's the lie you see on television occasionally. Nicaea talked about as God three persons, the Trinity. But in Nicaea, they also decreed that every city that has a cathedral should have a hospice for the sick. So early on, you see people putting into practice the words of Jesus, not merely words, but something to do, to live with our lives, to actually put into play. So compassion, we've got life, education, compassion. How else did Christianity change the world? Humility. At the time of Jesus, you have people like Plutarch who said, who wrote the essay on praising oneself incessantly or inoffensively, and along comes Jesus, the creator of the universe, and yet he humbles himself to the point of death on a cross, as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2. Uh, Jesus washed the disciples' feet, John 13, before his great upper room discourse to the disciples. And Jesus said, if you want to be first, be last. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. The Bible talks about servant leadership. We don't see that much today. In fact, in many places, in, for example, in Africa, a lot of people who go into ministry there, they think that they're supposed to be praised uh, 
as a result of them being these pastors. And so they're the ones that end up having the mansions on the hill and they take out all the money. And like, where's the servant leadership? In Christianity, the, the servants are supposed to be the ones who take the lead. And that's how God has called us. So humility, something very important. How has Christianity changed the world? Forgiveness. Now contrast the words of Jesus to, for example, the warrior Genghis Khan who said, what brings us the greatest happiness? To crush your enemies, to see them fall at your feet, take their horses and goods and hear the lamentations of their women. That is best. That's the secular idea. Crush your enemies. Jesus said, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing as he hung on the cross dying for our sins. Christianity provides forgiveness. How did Christianity change the world? Also is equality. Now, it's human nature to be a respecter of persons, you know, the rich, the famous, and to try to hobnob with those folks, whereas the Bible looks at it differently. Instead of getting rid of and disregarding the weak, the poor, the sick, slaves, women, and children. The Apostle Paul gave what's probably the first statement of what we call egalitarianism, equality, and it's in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free, neither male nor female. You are one in Christ Jesus. That's a radical statement in the first century because it was such a dominant uh, culture where the men dominated it. Now also, Gregory of Nyssa in the fourth century was the first abolitionist. He said, we got to do away with slavery. And if you read the story of William Wilberforce, who became a Christian in England, and he set out his life to get rid of the slave trade in England, and he accomplished that. So when people try to pin on Christianity's support of slavery, just the opposite. Christians were the ones primarily responsible for ending the slave trade in England and also in America. So you see, Christianity has had a profound impact on the world. It's changed so much that we do, whether it's education, whether it's the law, whether it's uh, hospitals and these types of things. The problem is that even though through the 17th century, Christianity began to dominate, things were going to change. But before we get to that, go to the next slide. Uh, Had an influence on the right to life, human rights as a lawyer. English common law is the basis of our legal system in 46 of our 50 states. And English common law is based on the Bible and biblical absolutes that there is a right and wrong that transcends uh, human culture. And so uh, this is what we have inherited from the dominant rise of Christianity to influence the world. So if you go to the 17th century, next slide. 17th century. Along comes a man named Thomas Hobbes, and he writes this famous treatise called Leviathan, which comes right out of the book of Job, by the way. And Leviathan is this political idea of of Thomas Hobbes. Now, if you read the Leviathan, you would think, hmm, Hobbes Hobbes uses King James terminology, biblical terminology, biblical illusions, biblical illustrations. Why, obviously, Hobbes is a Christian. No, in fact, Hobbes was an atheist. But the only way he could communicate in the 17th century was to use the dominant value system of his day, which was Christianity. Everything was coming up Christian in the 17th century. And so if you were a pastor in the 17th century, the task was fairly easy. 
you only had two types of people, Christians living consistent and Christians not living consistent with what the Scripture teaches. So you just had to preach consistency. There weren't a lot of non-Christians out there. They were few and far between. So fairly easy in the 17th century. But then things began to change. The rise of secularism. Probably the best way to coin it, secularism. We start with the 18th century, and here's where the fall began. It began with the Bible being attacked. The Bible gets mugged in the 18th century. Just like in the Garden of Eden, what did Satan say? Did God really say that, Eve? Did God really questioning and doubting the very word of God? So it started with these three types of people, Voltaire, where he was the French skeptic, David Hume, the Scottish uh, skeptic who said that miracles don't happen, and then you've got Ferdinand Bauer from Germany. This is the trifecta. Now, Bauer said, well, let's look at the New Testament. This gospel according to John, no, it couldn't have been written by an apostle of Jesus. What was his evidence for that, by the way? He didn't have any. He had an assumption that anyone who was walking with Jesus in the first century could have never referred to Jesus as God. No Jew could have done that. So based on the assumption, since the Gospel of John presents Jesus as God, therefore, whoever wrote this Gospel of John must have written it in the late second century, like maybe AD 170. That was his position. And because he was a so-called scholar, many people thought, well, he must be right. I mean, he's really smart. He's a scholar. People began to lose confidence in the Scripture. So if you want to see the slide towards secularism, the first attack on the Bible, which tells us how do we need to regain that lost ground, defend the reliability of Scripture. But that's how it starts, folks. Now the slide begins. You attack the Bible, there's an inevitable slide. Then we go to the 19th century. Along come two prominent figures. You got Friedrich Nietzsche, the German atheist who coined the expression, God is dead. Then you've got Charles Darwin, who a former divinity student, after his, uh, his little journey on the Beagle, decided, well, we really can explain life without God. We don't need God any longer. So in the 19th century, as a result of the Bible being attacked, God is attacked. And the idea of God as we understood him, Nietzsche basically said, we don't need God. In fact, Nietzsche projected a time in the near future in which humanity would rise up above our superstitious need for God and we would actually pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and become supermen, the German word Übermensch. Now, someone latched onto that in the 20th century. His name was Adolf Hitler. He's coming up in a moment. But you see, in the 19th century, after the Bible's attacked, the idea of God being dominant and existing and being a meaningful uh, entity that we need in our lives becomes abandoned. So the Bible's attacked, then God is attacked. That leads to the 20th century. In the 20th century, humanity is attacked. Humanity. You've got World War I, the war to end all wars. Of course, it didn't. In fact, if anything, it just created more unrest. And then along comes Adolf Hitler, the Third Reich, World War II. And what do we see? The 20th century, as a result of the Bible being attacked and God being attacked, humanity is attacked. Genesis tells us we are made in the image of God, the Latin term imago Dei. So what it says in Genesis 1, 27, 
In his image we were made. But that image has been attacked. Go on to the next slide. How has it been attacked? The consequences. Well, you've got abortion. In the U.S. alone, 50 million unborn babies since Roe v. Wade. And then you've got probably 500 million worldwide in abortion. And then you've got terrorism that rises its ugly head, rears its ugly head in the 20th century. These are the consequences of abandoning the Bible and abandoning God. Humanity bears the brunt of all this. Here's the legacy then of abandoning the Bible and God. Now, the secularists back in 1933, they came up with the Humanist Manifesto. We don't need God. Well, 1933 was a really interesting time. Right about the time that Hitler is beginning to rise and the Third Reich enters, and as a result of the Humanist Manifesto, people thought, well, maybe humanism really didn't call it right because they were a little early. So they came back, and in 1973, came back with Humanist Manifesto number two, where they say, no deity will save us, we must save ourselves. And what's the fallout from secularism and humanism? Well, you can see it here. Let's redefine everything that was the bedrock of civilization. Family, marriage, parent, gender, man, woman. Can you define what a woman is? No, that's above my pay grade. Really? That's the age we live in, folks. That is the legacy. Now, it was not hard to see it coming. Go to the next slide. Back in 1991, I wrote, that was my second book, and the whole issue of marriage. Uh, wow. Now, by the way, I don't give stock tips. I don't read tea leaves. I'm not a prophet. It was so easy to see this coming. So in 1991, before this became a big deal, I wrote, it's not difficult to anticipate a time in the near future when cohabitation by persons of the same sex will be afforded the same legal status as traditional heterosexual marriage. I wish I'd been wrong, but I knew it was going to happen. And there's more things on the horizon uh, as we speak now. So it was not difficult to see that happening. So what we have today then, if you go back, is uh, what I call a brave new secular world. Shakespeare in his last play, The Tempest, there's a line about what a brave new world. Aldous Huxley in 1931 wrote one of the top 100 novels of all time, fiction called Brave New World. He anticipates a time 500 years in the future where there would be not a utopia, a great place, but a dystopia, a really miserable existence where people use drugs, the government used drugs to keep people in line, and it was just a total mess. Well, Huxley was about 400 years too early because it's happening right now. The brave new world of Huxley is here today, folks. It's the brave new secular world. Why is it here? Because the Bible was attacked and abandoned, and then God was attacked and abandoned, and humanity in God's image was attacked and abandoned. So now we're in the 21st century. We're in an age of a brave new secular world. Now, I don't want you to be all bummed out because we got to pre present the problem before we get to the solution, but this is the area and the age we live in where you've got same-sex marriage, you've got a woman pretending to be a man and claiming to be a pregnant man. It doesn't happen. So what is the new identity for America? Are we going to go along with this? I have this book by David Noyce. It says, 
non-believer nation. Is that our new identity? Not if the church does what the church has been called to do, which is to occupy, to take a stand for Jesus, to speak out for him, and to address these issues, which we're going to be talking about in just a moment here. But what has been the response of the church to this rise of secularism? Well, first you've got the liberals, the people who really don't have a whole lot of confidence in the Bible. But the liberals say, well, if you can't beat them, join them. And the liberals sort of like the chameleon. You know, chameleons change color with their background and with their, their environment. Well, the liberal, someone might say, well, uh, we're in the revolution. Oh, well, the Bible's revolutionary. Well, we're into justice. Well, the Bible presents justice. And whatever the world says, the liberal is quick to grasp onto that. And so today, are the liberal churches growing? They're dying. Why? Because they became so adept at identifying with the culture that you can't tell a Christian from a liberal because the liberal Christians are just, look just like the world. So there's no change there. So if you can't beat them, join them. But the problem is the conservative, the evangelical, the Bible-believing Christian hasn't done a whole lot better because we've had the attitude, if you can't beat them, separate from them. Let's create our own little societies of the saved, kind of like a Christian monastery, then we won't be infected by those dirty non-Christians out there. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said, go into all the world, proclaim the good news. We are to intentionally share our faith and to rub shoulders with the people that Jesus died for, which means we have to get out there and do evangelism. So the problem is, we've abandoned the public square. And now, the last 20 years or so, we're like, we need to gain that back. Who's in the White House? And I think it is important to have leaders who reflect our values. But folks, let me make this clear. There is no political solution to a spiritual problem. I think politics is important because polis means the city it costs pertaining to I want clean water and clean air and the roads that are paved, et cetera, et cetera. There's a perfect place for that. And our policies when it comes to the rest of the world, very important stuff. However, the ultimate solution is not a political one. It's a spiritual one. Because the problems today are not political problems. They're problems of the human heart. We still have human hearts that are desperately evil, despicable. And who can know them, as Jeremiah says? So... We do see that we've abandoned the public square. Now we're trying to rally to gain it back. Well, if more people were born again, you would have a lot of resolution just there. Prophecy conferences. I love Bible prophecy. I'll talk about that some tonight. But that's not a replacement for evangelism. It's really nice to meet with people we like. I call that the holy huddle. And I was watching a lot of football yesterday, and I won't even comment on USC losing them a field goal at the last moment. Uh, playing football, you know, I played college football, and you get into the huddle, and here's your teammates, and you're all dressed alike, you all have the same type of outfit on, and, you know, you know everybody, you could just stay in that huddle, and it's safe, you don't get bumped and bruised, and you don't, don't get a bloody nose, you just stay in that huddle, and if you keep staying in the huddle, the ref's going to throw the flag and say, delay of game, five-yard penalty, move it back. And eventually, you're going to have to get on the line of scrimmage and hike the ball, put it into play, and do something. Because in the holy huddle, it's not where you win the games. It's when you get out there on the line of scrimmage and you hit it. And God is calling the church to meet like this, to be equipped as saints, 
to do the work of the ministry that happens outside these doors. That's the work of the ministry. That's what we're called to do. Emphasis on experience and devotional reading. Nothing wrong with experience. Nothing wrong with devotional reading. But if that's all we do, do we know how to proclaim and defend what we believe as Christians? And I dare say a lot of us in here probably would say, I'm not so sure I could do that. The last point being, we fail to obey. 1 Peter 3.15, sanctify Jesus as Lord and be ready at any time to make a defense. Now, the Greek word that's translated make a defense, and Peter was writing in the Greek language, is the Greek word apologia. Apologia is the basis of our word apologetics. It means to make a defense, to give reasons why what we're saying is true. And the word actually comes from the law courts in the first century in places like Athens. And if you were charged with a crime or you were charged with a civil wrong, you had a chance to respond, to make a defense. And that's what apologia is. We are to give reasons why Christianity is true for the hope that is within us. And then Jude says in Jude verse 3, to contend, King James, contend earnestly for the faith, which means to fight. Those who've studied the Greek language in Jude, the, the verb he uses there, it's actually the word agony. Agonizomai is the deponent verb in Greek for the Greek scholars. Agony with a preposition at the beginning, which means epi-agony, extreme hard work to defend the faith. It's not easy, folks. You ought to do your homework. So for some, oh, no, I just want to come to church, sing some songs, meet people I know, and go on about my way. Well, you can do that. But are we doing what Jesus called us to do? Some of us may have to leave our comfort zone to follow what the Bible is telling us to do. And I think it might be time for us to wake up and do just that. So what's the effect been? The effect. Uh, Lori's on the board of an organization called Ratio Christi, and I'm actually a scholar in residence for Ratio Christi. When I think of myself in the term scholar, I mean, I read the little blurb that put me here. By the way, it's not Western Seminary, it's Multnomah Seminary, where I'm uh, a visiting lecturer, visiting scholar. When I think of scholars, I sure don't look in the mirror and see a scholar there I mean, when I graduated from school, some people graduate magna cum laude. I graduated Lord of Halcoma. You know, I, I was happy to finally get through the school, but by the grace of God, uh, he is able to train us up. But the problem is this. We've done research. How many young people, when they enter the university, professing Christ, will still be professing Christ when they leave the university? Maybe a third. About 60% or more will walk away from their faith during their college time. We send them to these secular madrasas where they spend so much time trying to undermine everything they've been taught for 18 years. If they're not prepared, they're going to get slaughtered. We have a daughter that we sent to that wonderful Christian school, Berkeley. <laughs> it's a joke. And within a few weeks, after all the training and teaching, he was questioning things which is not a bad thing necessarily, but can we give them the answers when they have questions? And so many people are leaving. Some of them will come back, but the question is why? Now, the next slide, it may seem like it's going to be an indictment. It's not necessarily an indictment, but it's necessary to look at. Why are there these levels of failures? The parents haven't done the job. Why haven't they done the job? 
Because the church hasn't done the job training the parents. Why? Because the pastor hasn't trained the church. Why? Because the seminaries haven't trained the pastors in apologetics and evidence and how to reach our generation, which is always changing. So the campus ministries that are geared toward fellowship and devotions, uh, not intellectual challenges, it's great to meet people who are like-minded. Of course, that's back in the huddle. But at some point, we're going to leave the huddle. And are we ready to go and meet the enemy? And I won't say the people are the enemy. Sin and Satan are the enemies. But there's good news. Get back to the right slide here. With so many problems, is there good news? Yes. I'm not going to leave you all bummed out this morning talking about how bad things are. Let's talk about some of the good things happening. First of all, there is a renaissance of Christian thinking. There are so many tools, videos, teachings, webcasts, books, where you can understand how to assimilate and reach out and tell people about why Christianity is true. Can you defend the resurrection? Can you defend the Gospels? Can you defend the existence of God? You can, because it's available. A renaissance. First of all, there are graduate programs master degree programs in Christian apologetics, where now people are being trained for that specific purpose of giving evidence to people, whether it's in universities, whether it's at churches or whatever. Lori took a graduate program at Biola University. In fact, I was one of the charter faculty members of that uh, in Christian apologetics. You've also got Rasho Christi, which is a campus organization, not like campus life, to have fellowship. Fellowship's great. We need that. The Bible says that. But we also need to be able to give answers. And these are gatherings of Christians where we invite the non-Christian. And let's discuss this. Do you believe in God? If not, why not? And let's have a conversation where in a safe environment people can share their faith and discuss the problems they may have with Christianity. But not only are we going after the students on the campus, we're going after the faculty. And we have many faculty people who are engaged to share their faith with students at their university. And if you have a student on fire for Jesus, if you get them as a freshman, they have like four years of influence. But if you get a faculty member turned on for Jesus to talk to their students about Christ, you've got them for maybe 40 years. So we have students and faculty where we talk about the philosophical, scientific, and evidential reasons for following Jesus. Rasho Christie, you can look it up, look up the website. We've got apologetic conferences. Uh, I'm setting up one at our home church in California, Orange County, coming up in April. We've got some people who are fairly well-known in the areas of defending the faith. One is Jim Wallace, J. Warner Wallace, a former atheist and cold case detective from Southern California. He applied cold case homicide investigation techniques to the Gospels out of curiosity. What happened? As a result, he came to the conclusion this is true. This is what I would expect from a crime scene. This actually happened. And as a result, became a Christian. Wrote a best-selling book you can get now called Cold Case Christianity, where he gives his testimony and shows why he sees the Gospels as being reliable. So you've got that. Apologetic resources. Go online. There's all sorts of things that you can find out about any aspect of defending the Bible, the resurrection, etc. And there's also the new awareness. And in like talking to, to Kevin and Jake, realizing that your leadership is invested right now. 
They're aware. They've got the hand on the pulse, and they know for Yakima and greater Yakima and wherever else the Lord might lead all of you, the need is there to be able to be thinking people, to know what we believe and to know why we believe it. So that's the good news, that things are turning around, folks. We're realizing the 21st century is, is an issue here that we can address. So for the church, Romans 8.37, we're more than conquerors. There's good news. In fact, if you ever get way down in the dumps, just turn to the back of the book. We win. It's going to turn out okay. So first of all, more than conquerors. Secondly, we have to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. And again, the pastors are the equippers of the saints. They're not the ministers. Sometimes we get that confused. Hey, I mean, Kevin's not the minister? No, you're the minister. He's the equipper. So you do the work of the ministry. You know, he's a shepherd, and shepherds don't produce sheep. Sheep produce sheep. And the congregation, we're the sheep. So we need to get out there and produce more sheep. The biblical method of evangelism. I don't have time to go into it in detail, but look in Acts chapter 17. Paul uses evidence, reasoning, and persuasion. That's his method. He uses intellectual. Now, people may say, John, is apologetics like a substitute for the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. God, the Holy Spirit, opens people's hearts. People can't be converted unless the Spirit is working on them, but yet we can use our human efforts open people's eyes up in conjunction with the work of the Holy Spirit to convict the hearts. So there's a, really a, a, a team work there, evidence, reason, and persuasion. Now, something I want to talk about for the individual Christian, what, what can we do? A few admonitions here, and I've got a couple things here before I wrap it up. First of all, study the Scripture. Memorize Scripture. I memorized all my Scripture in King James. That's how I still have it memorized, which is okay. Some of the more modern translations are a little harder to memorize, but know the scriptures, know what you believe, but also know why you believe. Learn to use evidence. Now, how do you do that? Well, here's what I do. I, when I teach a class at the Doctor of Ministry program at Multnomah in Portland, Oregon, and I have students from all over the world, it's a Doctor of Ministry in Global Evangelism. And during my week-long, it's a 40-hour course, I make them stand in front of me. I put on a black robe. I pretend I'm a, an appellate court judge. And they begin giving a presentation such as believing that the resurrection is a true event that actually happened. And then I will interrupt them and ask some questions like in an appellate court. And say, well, what about this? What about that? To help them learn to think on their feet. What am I doing? I'm training them. Not teaching. I'm training them by the practice What's the difference? Well, I always equate this to fixing a carburetor. Someone could give me a manual and I'm a pretty good, have a pretty good memory, and I could get all the points. Here's how you rebuild a carburetor, okay? Give me the test. I pass the test with flying colors. Great. Now, John, go out and rebuild the carburetor. How do I open the hood? What size of wrench do I use? How hard do I turn it? I've not been trained. I've only been taught the facts, but I haven't put it into practice. We need some experience, some training to learn how to do this, to model how we can share our faith rather than just having a list of things that we memorize. We need to put it into practice. So that's part of the training. And then remember, with God, all things are possible. I mean, how can some kid who was born a long time ago in Yakima, Washington, God uses him all over the world? By the grace of God. 
So don't limit God because he can do great things through you. The biblical mandate, we mentioned 1 Peter 3.15, be ready, and we mentioned Jude that says to work hard. Now, I want to just quickly say that we need missionaries. Go to that slide. Now, here's, here's the stereotype of the missionary. It's the guy wearing the pith helmet and the seersucker suit, standing on the docks, the stamp treamers, uh, tramp steamers about ready to go off to Bunga Bunga, and he's going to convert the heathen in Africa. That's the old stereotype of the missionary, and you know, that probably was something that happened until about the middle of the 20th century. But if you think about what were foreign missions, go to the next one. What did they have to do? They'd learn the language of the natives, learn their culture, their values, their worldview, their false beliefs so they could refute them to bring the gospel where they are. That was the idea of foreign missions. Now, the world has changed, and now we've got people that not only don't believe in God, like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, they hate God. The difference. The Bertrand Russells and the atheists of the 20th century, they were just intellectual atheists. Today we have God-haters. They write books called The God Delusion by Christopher Hitchens. God is not great. The End of Faith by Sam Harris. These are the people who actually hate God, we're going to have to change what we do. The heathen are no longer just in Africa. Today, there are neighbors who've been secularized. They don't know the gospel. They don't know Jesus. They don't know the Bible. They're the ones that need what we have. So what we need today are missionaries who can reach the secular mind, the post-Christian modern mind. And what do these missionaries look like who can reach the 21st century secularists? It's you and me. The missionary of the 21st century is the apologist who can take Christianity and adapt it to the 21st century mindset to bring to the people who believe in transgenderism and woke ideology and all these weird things that are out there and to bring the simple good news to them where they are. But we have to understand their thinking processes. So today, you don't have to cross the ocean. You only have to cross the street to find somebody who has a different value set different ideas on truth, different ideas of reality. That's why the 21st century missionary is the apologist, the one who will take Christianity and adapt it to the people around us. Now, I'll close on this. Apologetics then can be used really two ways. One is discipleship. The other is evangelism. Why discipleship? Because to have evidence that Christianity is true can be great comfort when you go through deep water, when something tragic happens in your life, and you begin to wonder, is God with me? First John says, these things I've written unto you that, know, that believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know you have eternal life. First John 5.13, to know, not to hope, but to know. Well, there is a benefit of realizing that we are standing on truth, even if Tough times come our way. Even if trials come our way, that God is on our side and he's with us. And so for discipleship, to give a solid foundation for believers, that if their faith is challenged, they realize, oh, God may be testing me, but whether I believe it or not, it's true factually. The evidence, the archaeology, the history supports that it's true. And in a time of need, that becomes of great comfort. And it'll be a way to resolve some of those doubts. 
So apologetics, evidence can be used to train Christians in discipleship and help them follow Jesus closer. But lastly, it's a species of evangelism. It's a way to bring people to the cross of Christ. Some people have problems. They have obstacles between them and the cross. Our task is to remove the obstacles, to point out that, no, the Bible's reliable. It's true. What Jesus said is true. And give them a clear path to the cross of Christ. That is evangelism. Matthew chapter 9, I'll close with this. The greatest apologist, defender of the faith of all times, is Jesus himself. Matthew chapter 9, the same account as in Luke chapter 5 or or Mark chapter 2. It's in three places in the synoptics, they call them, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's when Jesus heals the paralyzed man. You know the story, I'm sure, where these four men had a friend who was paralyzed, and they wanted to bring him to Jesus. They'd heard Jesus could heal. So they brought him to Capernaum, to his house, and Jesus was teaching there. What was the problem? There were so many people there to hear Jesus, they couldn't get in the door. So they pulled apart some of the roofing material and dropped this man at Jesus' feet. So here's this paralyzed man dropped at the feet of Jesus, a room full of people, including Pharisees and scribes. And Jesus looks at this man and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Well, those standing by, some of the skeptics were thinking, who can forgive sin but God? Good question, because only God can forgive sin. And so they were thinking he was blaspheming. Well, Jesus is reading their thoughts. So he says, who would be easier for me to say? To say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven? That's easy. Anybody could say that, your sins are forgiven. Because you can't see if it happens or not. It's if it's happening in the spiritual realm, there's no evidence that plus or minus, for or against. So that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin in the realm that you can't see, it would be easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise up and walk. So that you may know the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sin, rise up and walk. Now, I don't play poker, but I've seen it on TV a few times, and that's called going all in. Jesus puts all his chips under the middle of the table and says, rise up and walk. And when that man rose up and walked, Jesus had used evidence of his spiritual authority by doing something that can be tested in the physical realm. They could now see with their eyes his power to heal, which means it's only reasonable that he is able to forgive sin. So Jesus uses evidence and reasoning and logic to promote his spiritual authority in the same way that we look at things like the resurrection and we say, God raised Jesus from the dead. Why did he do it? Well, the Bible tells us he died for our sins. That's why he rose from the dead, to prove that what he did on the cross was true. So Jesus uses apologetics, uses evidence to support the fact that he has spiritual authority. In the same way, we can use the evidence of the reliability of Scripture, the resurrection of Jesus, fulfilled prophecy, to show people that Christianity is true. And people can come and receive it by faith. All they have to do is ask. We are the church. We are the ones who are called out. We are the ones who can go out into all the world and share our faith with people. And that's the focus and the purpose of the church. Yes, to have fellowship one with another, but it's also to be trained and taught so that we can go out and we can live for Jesus and be witnesses to him. So that would be my prayer for 
the Restoration Church right here in Yakima, Washington. You would continue to be a beacon of light to this community. I appreciate the opportunity that I've had to meet some of you. And our prayer is going to be that God is going to continue to do a mighty work here. But we need to realize we are regaining the ground we lost to secularism. Are we ready to respond and turn things around? Let's pray.